G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Well, let's introduce our guest, Roy Williams, best-selling author. His new book called Post-God Nation. He's been awarded and recognized for some earlier books that he's written, one called God Actually, another one, In God They Trust, in which he made an assessment of the faith of our prime ministers through the past hundred-plus years. A former 20-year distinguished career as a lawyer. Now, these days, researchers, writes about Australian society, is a got book reviews regularly appearing in the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald and among many other uh, uh, different uh, aspects of his uh, career as it is now. But Roy Williams, welcome along to 2020. Thank you for having me, Neil. Roy, uh, we've had a number of conversations now over the years and great to catch up with you on your latest book because in this one you're actually thinking very carefully and in a detailed way. And I like what you say when you talk about uh, it's not necessarily an, a history book, but it is your observations of history and uh, how they relate to Australian society today. How important is it when you reflect on Australian society uh, to think through the history as well as where we are at the present? Very important, Neil. Um, half of the book is about the history of Australia seen through a, a essentially Christian perspective. Um, I felt I had to prove in the first instance that religion had been on the radar in the first place uh, before talking about when and why it, it fell off. Um, what I found in my research was really quite fascinating. I, I didn't expect to find quite as much as I did. I mean, obviously I knew that Australia was founded as a, as a Christian country in 1788. Um, but I was really surprised the more I drilled into every aspect of Australian history, just how prominent individual Christian men and women were and how important the churches were. You name it, in, in uh, politics, the law, exploration, um, education, science, business trade unions, everything. It's really quite remarkable. Now, you do have a personal connection to this uh, deep history that we have. Uh, did I read correctly uh, that your great, 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 great grandparents were married in Botany Bay? That's correct. At Port Jackson, yes. <laughs> um, William Nash, who was a, a sailor, and Maria Haynes, who was a... Well, she wasn't quite a convict but nor was she a gentlewoman either. Um, they, they were married. They were one of the first marriages in, uh, in Port Jackson in 1789. So and we they, might they assume... They were there at the first Christian ceremony conducted by Richard Johnson in 1788. I was about to say the likelihood is they were married by Australia's first Christian leader, the chaplain upon uh, the first fleet, uh, Richard Johnson. So uh, what an amazing connection that is. So did you do that genealogical uh, sort of history uh, research uh, of any recent times or is this something that's been part of your family for a while? 
Uh, my father worked that one out back in um, back in the 1970s. I remember helping him with a the family tree when I was a kid. Um, but when but and I was always fascinated by it and proud to be a first fleeter uh, on my father's side. But um, uh, when I was writing this book and, and reading accounts of the uh, the first colony, uh, Arthur Phillip and and the, and the first fleeters. Um, and the accounts of Richard Johnson's activities, um, I felt really emotional to try and imagine that scene uh, on what's now Circular Quay, uh, where the first prayers were, were, were conducted. Uh, it, it really moved me. Roy, let's get... This is such a big topic, and yep. we want to be able to uh, cover as much as we can, uh, inviting listeners, too, to be part of our conversation. Uh, when we look at Christianity in Australia today, and uh, you're recognising there's a what's called a Christophobia uh, in the media, uh, religion either ignored or treated with contempt. Uh, yeah. That's the way we are today. When you look back historically, you've identified that there were Christian roots. Uh, this is a Christian nation founded, and as we go right back to the arrival of that first fleet, and you're identifying even your own family history back to a wedding there by Australia's first Christian leader, Richard Johnson, and the tremendous impact that he made in the way that he helped to introduce early colonial life to Christianity. Yeah, it's now, funny, though, Neil, um, if I might just interrupt there. Sure. Um, Richard Johnson, uh, looking back at his career, I think he was a great man, but he, he considered himself a failure. He went back to England after about uh, 10 years in the colony and thought he'd failed. And, and indeed, many of the early Christian ministers and uh, uh, of all denominations shared that view. And I, I think that strain of thinking still runs through even a lot of Christian history today, that the idea that religion never much mattered here, that because of our origins as a penal colony on the other side of the earth... Um, that uh, the church has never really got started in the first place. Now, I think that's a myth. And indeed, I, I share the Manning-Clark view of Australian history to this extent, that the only way to truly understand it is, is to see it as a, a three-way contest, as it were, between um, Catholicism, mainly Irish and Roman Catholicism, uh, Protestantism, the, the British variety, and the ideals of the Enlightenment, with, with of course, a fourth layer, uh, namely indigenous spirituality, gradually morphing into indigenous Christianity. Well, when we talk about those, all very important. Uh, yeah. When we talk about Richard Johnson, uh, just to remain on him for a moment, yes. uh, the reasons why he felt that he was a failure. Yes. Uh, as I understand it, uh, the the dreadful conflict that developed with the second governor after Arthur Phillip, which was Francis Gross, uh, who introduced a whole lot of uh, uh, relaxed laws that allowed officers to trade in uh, spirits. Uh, yeah. It actually caused a, a dreadful uh, state of uh, crisis in the economy of the very first settlement and it brought him into conflict with the governor because he was going into bat 
for the for the poor and for those who are being affected by the dreadful state of the economy in the first settlement. So you've got this you've got this intense pressure on this leader. So is that are you able to reflect yeah, on that? Yeah, he no, felt like a failure because of that. That was certainly one element of it. Um, it's true to say that it, with, with the exception of John Hunter, who was the second governor, Grace was actually a lieutenant governor, but John Hunter was a very pious man. He was Arthur Phillips' deputy on the First Fleet. and He came back as, 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 uh, as the second governor, and he'd, he'd actually trained to be a minister in the Church of Scotland and was a very pious man. But until Lachlan Macquarie came in 1810... All the governors and lieutenant governors except Hunter were not terribly religious men, even Philip. I mean, frankly, they didn't give much support to the, to the chaplains. Macquarie was a revolutionary this, in many ways, the second father of Australia. And he made himself very... He was an evangelical Christian, by the way, a fact not sufficiently appreciated. Um, he's the one who really turned... Uh, Sydney from being just a penal colony, pure and simple, with a very basic economy, with a lot of corruption, as you, as you said, uh, the rum economy, into really a nascent society. Uh, Macquarie had this vision that uh, once a criminal had served his time or her time, uh, he or she ought to be treated as redeemed, you know, as a, as a, as a citizen able uh, to fall back on, on their own resources, then they should be judged by their, by their actions. And he emancipated a lot of convicts, um, made himself very unpopular in the process amongst the wealthy squatocracy and the powers that be. But he truly believed in, um, in the equality of man, that, that, that everyone was made in the image of God and, and deserved a, a fair chance. But uh, in the early days... Um, the governors weren't especially sympathetic to the church. Um, people like Johnson and Samuel Marsden and others who came came after them uh, really were were up against it for a long time. It was only it was only in about the 1820s that um, we see the evidence that the churches really became integral to society. And there's overwhelming evidence for that in all of the newspapers of the period from about the 1820s, 1830s onwards. Uh, religion is, is, is key. It's key. It's taken as a given that it is crucial to, uh, to society. And as more free settlers came as opposed to convicts, uh, that, that became emphasised. And I, I make the point, you were talking earlier about Christophobia in the modern media. I'd, I make the point, um, which I must say surprised me, Virtually all of the editors of the Sydney Morning Herald, for example, the most important newspaper in New South Wales, um, right up until the early 20th century, were ministers of religion. That's how important it was. Um, they were a mixture of denominations, but uh, uh, that, that's how basic religion was in the, in the media. Now, it wasn't always reflected in society, of course, but um, certainly the upper levels of society... Christianity was the, was the reflexive norm. It, it's now the opposite, of course. Of course, there was what we'd understand to be sinfulness uh, oh, yes, in the course. colony. But but what you're saying is what was driving the formation of Australia was 
founded with a Christian worldview and yeah. so the establishment of churches and schools and well, governmental all, institutions, these are all Christian. about schools? Yes. Early historians of New South Wales look back with amazement at how the first generation of native-born Australians turned out so well. Uh, it was almost a miracle when you look back on it, considering how harsh life was here and the strangeness of the conditions. Um, and yet this, the fact that many of their mothers were convicts, um, fathers, a mixture of reprobates and soldiers, and how did this first generation turn out, and everyone agreed on this, uh, turn out such a, an enterprising and essentially pretty well-behaved group of people? All sorts of explanations have been given, but I think it falls back on two things the more I looked at it. One was that their mothers, even though low-born, were Christian women. They'd, they'd, they'd been brought up with the basics, and whatever the failings of their own lives, they realised where they'd made mistakes, and they imbued their children with a certain ethos. The second thing is that the churches... or mainly the Anglican Church in the early days, had sole responsibility for education. And um, despite the sort of primitive conditions in, in which they had to work, they obviously did something right. Um, that first generation truly was a miracle. And so we're talking about a 19th century in Australian society which was seriously... Uh, coloured by Christianity and by the time we get to the start of the 20th century around that time of federation the number of Christians in Australia those who are ticking the box uh, on the census and yeah. as I understand it there was only one box to tick so but everybody ticked it uh, and, and but the numbers of people who were going to church who were religiously inclined uh, was just a, 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 it was a, a model picture wasn't it well, it, it, yes, I mean, compared to today, certainly, roughly half of uh, citizens went to church every week. Now, of course, that's not the only test of faith, um, but it's not a bad, not a bad starting point. In, in fact, in, in two colonies, Victoria and South Australia, it was closer to three quarters. Um, you know, quite incredible state of affairs when, when you look at the position now. Um, but as I said... Uh, it wasn't just the raw numbers, Neil. It was also the fact that at the highest levels of society in all fields of endeavour, I reeled off the list earlier, politics, law, exploration and so on, the leading lights were, uh, so many of them, men and women, were, were devout people who, who were quite openly motivated by their faith. And I argue, despite the bad aspects of Australian uh, history, that on the whole, that was, a, that was a force for good in all sorts of ways. And I'm, ha I'm happy to go to specifics if people want to ask me questions about it, or you do. Well, let's, but, let's not yeah. go to specifics now sure. because, uh, because I'm just overwhelmed. There is so much to cover because I want to get to a point where we can say, uh, Roy, in your research... 
what went wrong because what you're talking about in your new book, Post God Nation, how yeah. religion fell off the radar in Australia yeah. and what might be done to get it back on. For some people, they think of history and they think, oh, that's something that happened a long time ago. It doesn't matter today. Of course, it does matter today because we have some foundations in place that have been eroded. So when you think of what went wrong, how did we fall off the radar, what are the, the immediate things that come to mind? Well, I identify four big factors and a host of secondary factors. And I should say at the outset, the churches themselves have to share some of the blame. Uh, they made some terrible mistakes along the way, some of them well-intentioned, uh, others not so. Um, but there are also factors outside largely the church's control. So in brief, the four big ones, in my opinion... Uh, were were and are ignorance, general uh, a general decline in knowledge of religion, which goes back to uh, the school system, essentially, the secularisation of the state schools in the late 19th century. And I also argue increasing religious tokenism in so-called church schools. So that's point number one, just that people are not children and are not taught anymore the basics, so they're not in a position to make an informed decision anymore about these questions. So it's secularism by default. Roy, let's get, these, let's get these four points out and then we can yep. enlarge on some. But sure. uh, So we start with uh, education. What's, yep. your, what's your second point? Second one uh, is war, and, and I link it with nationalism. So uh, if you look at the census statistics, the two big drops in religious belief occurred in the aftermath of, respectively, World War I and the Vietnam War. Now, we can go into detail uh, as to cause and effect, but uh, insidious effects of, of horrendous wars, um, backed by the churches by and large, uh, is, I think, an important historical factor. Mm. One uh, that you do get onto uh, when you talk about getting back on the radar is the yes. church's response to war in the 21st century. But uh, yes. what was your third one? The third one is what I call scientism. Not science, scientism, which was the making of science into a sort of religion. So it's the idea that science now has superseded uh, God, has disproved God, uh, a very widespread notion. Uh, obviously, I think it's a false notion, but it is a it is a belief that many people now hold in Australia and across the West. And your fourth one? My fourth one. I think it's the biggest of all, and and that is sheer material wealth. So prosperity. Um, Australians now live in probably the luckiest country. Like a society in human history in terms of um, material comfort, um, but it's coincided with a steep decline in, in religious faith. And that, that's pretty common throughout the Western world. It's the opposite of the second and third worlds. Uh, obviously, there's a big argument about cause and effect, but um, I would argue that uh, the biblical uh, teaching that you cannot serve two masters. Uh, God and wealth is borne out 
by the history of Australia in the, in the 20th century. Roy, we've been talking about some of those, those points in Australia's history where we seem to have lost the plot, uh, fallen off the radar. You were talking about education, uh, late 19th century, yes. uh, the wars. You mentioned in particular uh, the First World War and the Vietnam War, uh, scientism and prosperity. Out of, out of those four points, and I guess they're all uh, taken together or they're interwoven in some respects into the way that, uh, that things happen with people's belief in God in a society, but out of those four, which one is outstanding to you as the one we need to perhaps address or recognise most? I think ignorance um, is the one we can do the most about. And it overlaps with, uh, with many of the others as well, um, Neil. As I said, um, it all goes back to the debates about schools in, in the late 19th century. What had happened then was that um, the population had, had outgrown the uh, capacity of the churches to provide schooling for all children. And quite rightly, uh, the, um, the governments of the various uh, colonies stepped in and said, well, look, we've, got to, we've simply got to set up schools of our own. Um, now, very few people at that time uh, in politics or in, or in education thought that the teaching of religion in schools would, would be a bad thing. In fact, most were strongly in favour of it and held very passionate views about it. But that was the problem, that, that the churches couldn't agree amongst themselves uh, as to what form of religion ought to be taught in public schools. And just remembering that uh, then as now, um, at least half, it's now closer to two-thirds of, of children get their education in state schools, not in, not in church schools. So to cut a long story short, the problem was so hard that the powers that be sort of threw up their hands and said, oh, look, if you can't agree, we're just going to make the schools secular. Now, the, long -term, the short term effects weren't quite as dire as, um, as might be imagined because there were, there were other factors, of course, working in favour of religion at that time. Um, Sunday school movement was very strong and was, uh, was beefed up uh, in the early 20th century. Um, the Catholic school system operated as a very strong bulwark for religious values, as did some Protestant schools. So it, it took time for these effects to filter through. But what I argue in the book, Neil, is that for at least two generations now, since roughly the 1960s, school students uh, have gone through the system without being taught even the basics of religion. I'm, I'm not talking here about uh, intense doctrinal instruction. I'm just talking about uh, equipping children to, to ask themselves the basic questions, the, the, the most fundamental questions of, of human existence. Uh, why are we here? What, if there is a God, what does that God expect of me? What are the arguments for and against the existence of, of a God? Uh, what do each of the major religions of the world stand for? Now, the, the level of ignorance... Uh, out there is, is really quite frightening, uh, including among otherwise extremely well-educated people. And I count myself in this. I, I, I was uh, not brought up in a, um, in a religious home. And although I was very well-educated, 
uh, I realised in my 30s that I knew next to nothing about the most important questions of all. And I think that's unfair. I think that's unfair for Australian children. That they come, it's all very well to say, oh, look, once they're adults, they can make up their own minds. But if, but if they haven't been taught the basics, they're, they're simply not equipped to make up their own minds. Um, it's, it's secularism by default. And I think that's why I think the school system is one of the keys to, uh, to uh, addressing this problem, if there's a will to address it. Interesting reflecting on these things, Roy, because we're going right back to the 19th century here and the the change. And as you said, it wasn't felt immediately because of the strength of a Sunday school movement. That's right. Uh, And churches wouldn't have objected to that idea because uh, there would have been a focus on, you know, teaching all of those, uh, you know, the read, write and arithmetic and uh, all of those uh, those issues. And children were being looked after spiritually because of this Sunday school movement. If you've got a decline of the Sunday school movement and you've got a remaining secularization of... Uh, of uh, education, there you have the recipe for ignorance about God. And that's precisely what happened in or about 1970. Uh, You had the the, the collapse of the Sunday school movement um, coinciding with the increasing secularisation of state schools. So, I mean, I can remember I was in third class in 1970 and our teacher had us recite the Lord's Prayer every morning. This is in a state primary school. I mean, it's inconceivable that that could happen now. It possibly might be illegal. I don't, I don't know. But there was still a, you know, there was still a remnant of, of teachers in those days who, uh, who were themselves Christians. I mean, I think it's, it's a chicken and egg situation now where many of the teachers are, were not raised with a knowledge of religious concepts, so they're obviously not in a position to uh, to pass them on, even if they were, even if they felt free to do so according to the curriculum. Um, but that's that's roughly where the turning point occurred. That twin collapse of the Sunday school system and the uh, what you might call the intensification of the getting religion out of state schools, other than the sort of token scripture classes or SRE as it's now called. It's great insight and Mm. listeners will no doubt be inspired that something has to be done. It's just uh, who will do that and who will rise to the occasion. But let's take some calls. John from Coburg in Melbourne. Hello John, welcome along to 2020. Mr Neil, how are you? Very well. John, welcome along today. What are your thoughts? Well look um, you know um, I think you're making a lot of excuses. We we do still celebrate Christmas and Easter in this country. People go to funerals, they hear the message, they're not interested. When when they're ready, they've hit rock bottom, whatever's happening in their life, when they seek for God, they'll find God. You don't have to throw Christianity down people's throat and force it down the school system. If they genuinely seek God, God will reveal his face to these people. We do celebrate Christmas, we do celebrate Easter. People have know the message. They're just not interested. It's simple as that. The idea of trying to force this stuff down people's throat is wrong, and I think it's not Christian because Jesus gives everybody equal equal opportunity. Um, uh, so, in a sense, God doesn't force people to come to Him. He gives them an opportunity to come to Him. If they choose to come, they come out of free will, not because we we can obviously make the soil prepared for them. We can prepare the soil. 
we can give a good message. But ultimately, at the end, the people are not seeking God in the West because life is comfortable. John, let me just cut in here because you're talking about preparing the soil uh, and yet you're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't actually have this opportunity in schools. Well, Well, John... uh, It should come from the parents. Yep. Let's hear from our guest, Roy. Roy, what are your thoughts on what John is sharing? Well, I I certainly don't totally disagree with John. I mean, it, it is true, and Paul said that no one really has an excuse. Uh, God, if you just look at the night sky and listen to your conscience, uh, that should tell you something. So everyone does have a fair opportunity. But I think I think as Christians we have a duty to evangelise, and we, we do have a duty to, to help prepare the path for others. And uh, I do sincerely believe that Younger people today, not perhaps not older people so much, but but younger people, I, I I do feel feel for them intensely. That I'm not sure they have been given a fair chance. Uh, if they're not raised in a Christian home, if they don't go to a Christian school and they don't hear about it at school, and all they hear all they hear is what they hear in the media, I'm not sure that the occasional reference to Easter and uh, Christmas and even those institutions, uh, uh, festivals, are being secularised. I'm not, I'm not sure that our young people really really have been given a fair chance. And we might but, but say... I do, I do take John's point that that uh, education is not everything. I mean, there are some people, you could, you could, you could argue the toss of them for years and they, and, they, and they simply won't listen. And I think John's right that prosperity, uh, idolatry, to use biblical language, worship of, of wealth and material comfort uh, is a big factor in that. John from Coburg, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. Let's hear from Coral in Cooma. Hello, Coral. Welcome along. Hello. Coral, what are your thoughts? Look, I, I only got a brief thought. I wanted to thank Roy very much for um, his insight and writing this book and helping us to see what he thinks are the strands and that in Australia that have affected us because we're like... Um, you know, when they had bullfights and that, we're like fighting the bulls. We don't know everything that's happened, you know, and you can be reacting to certain things or not realise certain things and you're never going to win until you see it in perspective. And I just really um, appreciate really good books that doesn't even matter if I've been wrong because you can see see what's been happening, if you know what I mean. Well, thank and you so much. Uh, yep, Roy. You've hit the, well, thank you. I'm, I'm touched by that because we really do need to see the history of our country in some sort of perspective. Um, I don't know that modern people do. They kind of imagine that this is the way things have always been and, and they don't realise that they've been shaped by forces, not just in 1788, but going going right back to thousands of years and got an early chapter in the book let me just give a couple of very specific examples if i may neil sure of things that modern people modern unbelievers take absolutely for granted and don't realize are direct historical products of christianity now some of these are controversial but i i make the case in the book that things such as the scientific method itself uh, is a product of christianity the idea that man has the capability of investigating nature, 
looking for purpose behind it, looking for laws behind it that were created that are not an accident. That all of the great scientists, virtually all of them, down the years, uh, down the centuries, were devout Christians. People like Newton and Copernicus and, and you name you name it. Uh, that's, that's just one example. The second one is the idea of equality, so the idea that we're all equal in the sight of God. That, that led in turn to equality in, in society. So, the, for example, the abolition of slavery, uh, the growth of the, the, the English rule of law, probably the English people's greatest gift to the West, that we're all equal before the law. Uh, various forms of parliamentary democracy, it's true there was a basic form of democracy in ancient Greece, but nothing like the form that the developed in the West. And perhaps the most basic of all, the idea that charity, compassion for one's fellow creatures, is a good thing rather than a sign of weakness. In the classical world, uh, charity was seen as a weakness. Humility was seen as a weakness. Um, was the Christian church building, of course, on the example of Christ uh, that established these things as basic features of, of the perfect life. And so we get hospitals, we get schools, we get poor relief, even the kind treatment of animals. All, all these things can be directly traced to the church. Now, that, this is a huge historical argument, I grant you, but these things didn't just happen, and that's why what that lady said is quite right. We have to see our society in a wide perspective, not just sort of what happens to be the case now. It's not inevitable. It was not inevitable that, uh, that these things have to be as they are. Carol from Cooma, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. Let's hear from Anderson in Mount Barker. Hello, Anderson. Welcome along. G'day, Neil. Uh, g'day, Roy. G'day. Thanks for the program. Um, it's really interesting listening to it um neil as much as i admire and uh yeah applaud your abilities as an interviewer i think you're one of the best that's ever been in this nation <laughs> i hope uh, roy you get a similar chance on secular radio because what you have to say is really important i wanted to ask a question or, or raise the point about ignorance i think you're dead right um the ignorance of of people is stunning i, I recall my wife's best friend um being most alarmed when we had babies 20 or 30 years ago that we weren't um, dunking them as kids because they'd go to hell if they died before they got baptised and stuff like this. Uh, religious hocus-pocus, I couldn't believe it. Um, but the thing that really interests me, um, I had on one of my building sites a young um, uh, Irani boy, a uh, Muslim boy. We had some interesting discussions, all, all, all very friendly and interesting, um, uh, what staggered me was how little I knew about his faith, which is virtually zip, and what amazed me was um, I didn't think he was that much more educated either. Um, now, we have a lot of people coming to our country from different countries, and multiculturalism is, is the way that things are going, whether you agree with it or not. Um, decisions are made, and I, I strongly suspect a lot of the people making the decisions really don't know dilly squat mm -hmm. about the religions of the people... Um, who are coming here, and what the effect on our society is going to be in the short, medium, 
or long term. Anderson, let's hear from Roy on on some of those points that you're making there, and particularly uh, that if the general populace is suffering with a level of ignorance about religion, Roy, uh, that means that our legislators are also suffering as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on what Anderson's sharing? Uh, I, I I think multiculturalism is a is a crucial issue, and I and I talk about it in the book at some length. Um, I'd say this. Um, firstly, I, I don't think that it is one of the main causes of secularisation. In fact, I, I argue that, first of all, we've been a multicultural society from the beginning, since 1788, uh, where the uh, constituent parts of society were made up of the different parts of the British Isles. So England, Scotland, Wales and... Uh, Ireland and the religious differences then between Catholicism and the various branches of Protestantism were were as wide, if not if not wider, than some of the differences today. It, it, it's a bit of a myth that we've been a monocultural place. Mm. Also, the the influx of um, people of different uh, racial national backgrounds since World War Two was very much helped along by the Christian churches. Um, Catholic Church played a huge role in, in resettling many of the Eastern and Southern European migrants. Uh, similarly, in more recent times, a lot of the, the Asian, Southeast Asian migrants have gravitated to the Protestant churches and, um, uh, and have become an integral part of the congregations in, in many of those churches, have strengthened them. I know my own Presbyterian church is a good example. Um, the other point to note is that other religions uh, still only account for, I think it's 7 or 8% of the Australian population according to the most recent census. So it's still, it's still a fairly modest percentage. Um, and I'd argue that Christians have... We actually have more in common with, for example, uh, people of uh, Islamic faith than we do with the mass of sort of completely apathetic unbelievers in Australian society. At least we're on common ground that, that there is a creator God mm. who is personally interested in uh, the thoughts and conduct of, of every human being. Mm. Obviously, there are huge theological differences between between the main faiths, but, but I'd argue it's not at the absolute root of secularism. It, it may be at the root of co- some elements of conflict in society but but it's not at the absolute root of of unbelief it's a um it's an issue we have to be very mindful of of course um but i'd be promoting dialogue within the faith so that we all know more about all religions and, and not merely uh, australia's most important religion Anderson from Mount Barker, thanks so much for your input here today on 2020 and uh, interesting to talk about those issues because, as you say, in total, all of those different religions, Roy, uh, total around about 7%. Uh, We've still got a 60% 
uh, Christianity-aligned nation of Australia. And yeah, it has to be admitted, though, Neil, that that, that 60% is, is a soft number. It is a soft number. Yeah. The, the, point I, the point I'm making is that, mm. uh, is that sometimes we think there are threats to Australian society that come from multiculturalism, whereas what you're saying is it's not so much that that's the threat, it's this secularism that needs to be addressed, not so much the multicultural aspects of Australia. That, that is, in a nutshell, my, my belief, uh, Neil. I, I, just, I cannot get over the fact that uh, all of the waves of immigration since World War II uh, was supported by the churches, by and large, and that the churches themselves have been bolstered, both Catholic and Protestant, by huge numbers of, of non-British people. Yep. We'll continue our, our religious citizens. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. There still may be time for another call or two. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to be part of our conversation, we're talking with Roy Williams about his new book called Post-God Nation. Back with more in just a few moments. On the next Lamplighter Theatre. I cannot help but speak of the one who loves me. Jesus? Yes. Jesus is still teaching me about his boundless love. I long to have the same love for him and for others. The Christian has to be dealt with. Why? He has been talking to my parents about his religion. We kill the infidel tonight. Don't miss the next Lamplighter Theatre. Saturday afternoon from 4 Western, 5.30 Central and 6 Eastern on Vision. An important message from the CEO of Voice of the Martyrs, John Wilson. The fires of persecution are still burning fiercely today in Nigeria. Join with me to pray for our brothers and sisters so that they may withstand these flames. Please don't abandon them. Go to our website today at vom.com.au to find out how you can help. Station sponsor, Voice of the Martyrs. Visit vom.com.au or call 1300 Martyr today. Voice of the Martyrs, serving the persecuted church. Want wholesome, positive TV the whole family can enjoy? Visit acc.tv. This week's Saturday night family movie, Underdogs, set in rural Ohio, the birthplace of football. Underdogs is the story of a small-town high school football team destined to play their crosstown rival, a perennial powerhouse, while standing up for an entire community. Underdogs, Saturday, 7 p.m., AEST. On station sponsor, ACCTV. I believe our country needs God. I believe that faith is an action. I believe God transforms lives through his word. Join us next Tuesday to Friday for Visionathon. We believe. It's Neil with you. The Thursday edition 2020, Roy Williams, our guest, best-selling author, talking about his latest book called Post-God Nation. Uh, still maybe time to take a call or two. Let's just take uh, let's take another one. Liz in Jacobs Well in Queensland. Uh, Liz, what are your thoughts on what we're talking about today? Well, I really I agree with him that it's a secular problem more so than a multicultural problem. And to sum it up in a nutshell, I guess that really um, there's a lot of Christians who are not who say they're Christian, but they don't want to be labelled as a Christian. They don't want to be seen. They don't go to church. And they, uh, a bit like the gentleman who was on before. And I, I have to say, I was a lot like him. I didn't want anything shoved down my throat. Uh, but uh, now that I'm, I've, I've seen the light, so to speak, I just can see our morals disappearing. And it's not so much a multicultural problem. It, it's because we're going secular and we have no, no compass. 
Liz, Liz, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. Uh, We're running short of time. Wanted to tackle a couple of things with you, especially, Roy, before the news, uh, and really based on what Liz from Jacob's Well is sharing too. And she was talking about uh, an earlier call from John and talking about the soil and education, preparing the soil, those sorts of things. Let's see if we can uh, tackle some of these solutions, what might be done to get back on track uh, what are your immediate thoughts, Roy, about actually turning around some of the challenges we've faced over 200 years and getting religion back on the radar? Well, it's such a huge question, but let me just throw a few ideas out there, um, Neil. Um, first of all, I think the, the churches have to face up to the one big elephant in the room at the present time, uh, which is the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse. I mean, that wrong has to be righted once and for all in a totally honest, open and generous and biblical way. Uh, I don't think it's a main cause of secularisation, but until it's fixed, the voice of the churches is is simply not going to be sufficiently credible. I hope we can all agree on that. Um, This... Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I was going to say this issue of credibility, a very powerful one, and in some sense, uh, it's going to take time for that credibility to return. Yes. Uh, in in one sense, uh, you know, reflecting back on uh, other issues, like remember the Fitzgerald inquiry, yes. uh, where in Queensland the the police had no credibility at all. After the inquiry, things were resolved, people were prosecuted, and all of a sudden the police began to emerge from that, and they had that credibility again, and and today held in high esteem in the state of Queensland. The same sort of thing. Do you think that's a possibility for uh, for the church uh, beyond oh. inquiries like this one? I hope so. I hope so, Neil. I mean, I think the time has come to forget about tricky lawyering and spin doctoring and and just get out there with full and frank apologies, uh, compensation, uh, root and branch reform of of the relevant structures. Some of these things have already begun, it's true, but uh, that isn't the public perception. So I think that's a crucial thing. Um, Schools I've talked about... As a general principle for Christian evangelists, um, I make a couple of points in the book. One is I think Christians have to be uh, have to be bold. They have, it's no point uh, just offering a wishy-washy form of secularism. It, it, it has to be based on the supernatural claims of Christ, the amazing, the apparently foolish, as as Paul described them. Because that's really what startles and ultimately changes people. Um, I don't think there's much of a future in just trying to be a just trying to be nice um, and follow and be like a weather vane and follow the majority. I do think the churches have to try and get on better. The various denominations uh, have to have to display visible unity in a way that uh, is, is sometimes lacking. That's another general principle. Uh, I think on issues of morality, which some of your callers have um, touched upon, uh, I think, again, that the churches just have to be bold. Um, Even if it's unpopular, I think they have to toe the line. They have to um, they have to hold the line on a whole swag of those social issues. Um, Pornography, gambling, advertising, alcohol consumption, drug use, credit cards, obscenity. All of that, all of those trends, where I think even a lot of secular people now are prepared to admit that 
things have gone too far in the other direction. We don't, we don't need to return to sort of complete wowserism and Puritanism, but, but there is a case for the churches to be strong voices on those issues and, and, and be respected for it. Similarly, uh, on the question of war, uh, the churches, as they have done in recent decades, um, speak out against hastily ill-conceived wars. That Roy, I'm going to have to. Thousands of people. I'm going to have to cut in uh, sure. because uh, your thoughts. I don't. I don't. I feel dreadful cutting you off at this That's point. Right. We're just listening to these, uh, and I know listeners will be uh, hanging on every word. I'll point people to the book. It's called Post God Nation. Our religion fell off the radar in Australia. What might be done to get it back on? You can get a hold of that. Uh, ABC shops, uh, Coorong, uh, good bookstores. Uh, Roy Williams, always good getting your insights and no doubt we'll get another opportunity another day to uh, delve a little deeper. But thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you so much, uh, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.